morning and welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we are going to continue on a series that we started it off, seems like forever ago, but we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And the series is called for, uh, Corinth, the Postmodern Faith. And just to recap, one of the reasons why we looked at it this way is because the church in Corinth really represents for us a lot of the issues that we're dealing with today in the church. Well, the good news is 2,000 years ago they dealt with it as well. Sometimes the solutions are a little bit different than what we would apply to it, but it, what it helps us to understand is to bring us back to a bit more of an, an ancient understanding. Now, one of the things we say at UCC about who we are is that we are a church that's trying to travel what we call the ancient paths. And one of the reasons we talk that way is because, and again, we're going to talk a little bit about this morning, spoiler alert, but uh, one of the ways we, reason we talk about that is because whatever the church has become, However we look at the church, there was a time, briefly, where the church kind of got it right. And that's where the Church of Corinth teaches us. But they got a lot of stuff wrong as well, and, you know, we get a chance to deal with that as well, too. So let's go to the next slide there, and let's take a look here about uh, what we talked about last week. So last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 12. This morning, we're going to look at the second part of chapter 12. And chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives us, I don't want you to misunderstand this. Now, we looked at the, at the gifts of the Spirit, and last week was kind of, a, a, a kind of an overview or a, a, a reminder of how the Holy Spirit is meant to work in the church. And one of the things I said and kind of kept coming back to really is what Francis Chan said in his book, Forgotten God, that if we think the Bible to be true, if we believe the Holy Spirit has come to live in us and transform us, shouldn't there be something different about how we live? Right? Like, I remember we looked at last week, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this week, but if all you had was the Bible, and you read it, and you go, wow, these Christians, these individuals who receive the Holy Spirit, they're going to be something kind of cool. But then you go to a church, and you're kind of going, this? This is what spirit-filled Christians look like? Act like? Behave like? Talk like? Social media-like? I'm a little disappointed. And I think there's rightfully so. And so we kind of wrapped up talking about this idea about the gifts of Spirit. And one of the things I wanted to say to you is that what Paul says and what Paul assumes about the Holy Spirit is every one of you, every one of you are given a gift of the Spirit. And as I said to you last week, it's not just one, right? Remember the two things we said about the Holy Spirit. The first thing is the Holy Spirit is need-oriented. This is why what can be frustrating for me as a Western pastor in a, in a Western church is that when I hear about Christians overseas, right? And I've had opportunities briefly to travel to different countries. And I told you a little story last week about uh, one, of the women, uh, one of the people I met when I was in Uganda. But I always find it so incredible that when I meet people from uh, other parts of the world that have less resources, less structure that we would have here than Western churches, their Holy Spirit quotient is like through the roof. And the reason it is so is because I got nothing else. And it's like, man, I, I, I'm not saying we tear everything down, you know, and let's burn this, you know, place down. Uh, well, we don't own it, so let's not do that for sure. But it's kind of like, oh, I, I miss that vitality. I miss that way of looking at it. And again, we look at this quote by N.T. Wright, and I think what N.T. Wright says is absolutely true. Whatever the church is, and we're going to look a little bit deeper on this in the second part of chapter 12, the church was meant to be this function of the Holy Spirit, and that each one of us was meant to have a gift of the Spirit that we are meant to use. Now, I did make a bit of a mistake last week, 
And I want to thank Pastor Ben for pointing it out to me because I did make a mistake and I want to clarify that mistake and I want to give credit where credit is due and apparently somebody takes notes and pays attention, so I appreciate that. But one of the things we talked about when we talked about this in the Holy Spirit series a few months back is I said this, this is how God has used me in the past. Now this is important because I kept talking about the gift of the Spirit and I, so, I told you that you do not know what your gift of the Spirit is because you do not know what need is going to arise in your life or what need you're going to encounter. And what I said in the past, and I just want to remind you, and I want to thank Ben for, for pointing this out, is that all you can say about the gift of Spirit in your life is this is what God has done in my life in the past. But you do not know what God is going to do in your life in the future. And the reason I love that is it's terrifying. Just to be clear, there are, there, there are aspects of our lives that if just, you know, like, let's just maintain, Lord. Let's just, you know, I, I, I'm comfortable with this. I'm happy with how things are going. Let's just maintain. But God knows that disruption of our comfort is where the Holy Spirit really rises in us. Right? That's just, the, that's a plain reality. I, you know, I'm lazy. And if you ask my wife, she will definitely say I, I'm lazy. And my laziness stems from the fact that I'm good with what I have. But what God wants to do and what he really wants to do is inside of me, he says, there is more. Right? And, 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 and uh, back a, a couple months ago when we did another different series, I said that one of the things I look for in my life and what I look for in other Christians is a spiritual hunger. See, we have a hunger for influence, affluence. We have a hunger for stability. I don't want to use this hunger for a spouse, but you get the idea, right? We have, we have different desires in our lives that we like to see fulfilled. But the desire that really defines us as Christ followers do we want more of God? And it's that desire that will actually navigate us through our entire lives. Because apart from everything else in your life that you think you have control over, think you have wrapped up, the only thing that God, the only thing the enemy, the only thing that life and circumstances can't take from you is your desire for more of God. And I said to you before, and I'll just remind you, the only prayer that you can pray to God that God always says yes. Because remember, in our prayer life, there's, there's different kind of responses, which, by the way, is our next series that we're doing after Corinth. Um, but in our prayer life, it could be no, it could be yes, or it could be not yet. Right? But really, when it comes to saying, Lord, I just want more of you, the answer is always yes. Because this is one of the few promises in Scripture that God says, when you seek me, when you look for me, when you ask for me, there I am. And so that's what we looked at last week. This morning, we're going to start the conversation by looking at narcissism. Because why not? Um, there's a great book called The Narcissism Epidemic by Dr. Jean Twenge. Dr. Jean Twenge, by the way, she is, in my opinion, one of the uh, foremost thinkers on this. When I was a youth pastor, uh, she had a book called Generation Me. If you're looking for a great book to read, I'd absolutely read it, but it's horrifying. And again, I blame you millennials and extras. It's all, it's all on you. But uh, she's a great, uh, um, she is, I think, a foremost expert on this narcissism epidemic in regards to its manifestation, how it kind of plays out. But uh, Dr. Keith Campbell kind of came along with her as well, too. It's a fantastic book, again, if you're looking for a weird book. But this is what they say in the book. It says this. When people began to cast off societal constraints and expectations in favor of exploring their own human potential, this movement did begin with a purely narcissistic slant, yet by the 1970s it morphed into self-admiration, self-expression, and self-absorption. Let me pause. So what she's saying is that when we look at this idea of the narcissism epidemic, we think of today. But what she actually rightly points out, this actually starts off, I would argue, the late 60s, but in the 1970s, my generation. 
right? And my generation was all about this idea of, like, you can be more, you can do more, right? And so what would happen was is that we believed this so much so that this idea kind of came out that, you know, if you believe in it, you could, you could have it. Well, I believe that I could be a point guard in the NBA. I will never be a point guard in the NBA. Not even the WNBA, not even, not even the CBA. No, there isn't a team that will have me as a point guard, just to be clear. And I'm not too bad, but I'm not even NBA potential. And what would happen was, is my generation realized quite quickly that whatever we dream, whatever we think could be true, not necessarily is true. Well, this kind of morphs into this idea in the, in the next generation into, you're very special. You're special. Right? And so this idea of like, you know, emotional intelligence, again, nothing wrong with this, but this specialness started to kind of pervade the conversation that we start talking about and having around it. Well, again, uh, there's a phrase I like to use is called unintended consequences. And so the unintended consequences of this is that if you're special, if it's your truth, it's your world, well, then, it all has a hard then you have a hard time playing nicely with other people. It goes on to say this, further research has supported the, refer the referenced increase in feelings of self-worth with one nationwide data set showing twice as many American college students answering the majority of questions in a narcissistic direction in 2009 compared with 1982. So basically what we are seeing is narcissism has increased exponentially. Whenever you see something like this increase double, you're like, wow, that's a lot. And statistically, that's enormous. But college students, and again, high school students, are answering questions of self-worth in a far more narcissistic uh, way than they have ever in, in, uh, had in the past. Now, let's talk let's, let's a little bit further. A recent surge in multiple social media platforms has further added to the rising tide of narcissism. Social media users generate their content, use it mostly for self-promotion, self-glorification, look, uh, look important, show popularity, and gain attentions. This is kind of funny. Scientists have even provided a formula, N equals S slash H, which is, again, the number of selfies per hour. Which, I, I, again, you should just do this on your own, right? How many selfies you post per hour? And again, per hour seems horrifying, you know, seeing as I post one like once every four months. But still, like, like you know, like, like this, is, this will tell you your narcissistic quotient. So the individual who has a TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, tweet, multiple times per day? I'm not saying you're a narcissist. But somebody else might be. Okay. Um, uh, the higher frequency of using Facebook is associated with a higher score of the narcissistic personality questionnaire because users think others are interested. Studies also show that people high in superiority feelings prefer Twitter, whereas those in high exhibitionism uh, prefer Facebook. Now, remember, this is written before TikTok and Instagram, so I don't even know how that, that, like what that variable does to it. Um, what's interesting as well, too, is that if you look at the di uh, diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or otherwise known as the DSM, it describes narcissism this way. A pervasive pattern of grandiosity, need for admiration, and lack of empathy. This definition states that self-importance and lack of compassion are critical elements of narcissistic behavior. Pause. What's really important to me is not the idea that people are narcissistic, but when you become more narcissistic, look what happens. You have less empathy, right? This is one of the reasons why we have a hard time in this idea of getting along with one another. Because if the world revolves around me, if I'm so important, then why can't other people just live the way I want them to? And of course, a lack of compassion. Lack of empathy and lack of compassion is really the kind of the fault line in regards to the conflicts we're seeing in culture today. Right? And again, we've talked about this at UCC. UCC is not a political church. 
I will never tell you who to vote for. I will never tell you what to do. We will, however, abide by the rules given to us by the government. We're not that church. I know that's kind of disappointing for some of you, perhaps, but we're not that type of a church. Why? Because it's not important. We don't live by the kingdom of this world. We live by the kingdom of heaven. And when we look at how Jesus teaches, those who call themselves Christ followers, there are certain boundaries that we have to live by. And there are certain boundaries that we live within, but there's certain boundaries that we go, you know, the world can't tell us how to believe or to think. Just, just be kind of clearly. Now, what's interesting is we're talking about narcissism, and it's easy to talk about narcissism in the world. But here's the problem. Narcissism has found its place in the church as well, too. Spiritual narcissists love churches, tells us Bonnie Ronstrom. She says this, by narcissists, we are not talking about people who struggle with being too self-focused. That's most of us. That's true, right? A narcissist is a person whose narcissism influences every aspect of their functioning. They are wholly self-focused, lacking in empathy, and willing to lie, cheat, and manipulate others to feed their insatiable need for power, control, and adoration. Spiritual narcissists are predators who wear a convincing Christian costume. See, we can't talk about narcissism. It's so easy for us as Christ followers to say, yeah, the world's really narcissistic. See, the problem is churches now function as narcissist machines. How pastors view themselves, how churches present themselves, there's kind of an underlying, underlying layer of narcissism. And this is a very uncomfortable conversation because we would think that Christ followers, we should be immune to this or we should be counter to this, but it's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, I would say that many churches, without realizing, again, unintended consequences, have kind of followed the narcissistic path. Um, Paul Mendovin says this, we've, uh, we've looked to the world to replicate, the, uh, replicate and then Christianize its celebrity impulse, and this continues to create all sorts of problems in the church. Looking to the modern American church and looking back to what we know about the early church with the church of Corinth being exempt, uh, exempt early followers of Jesus seemed much more skeptical about power, prestige, and affluence. While modern, Christian, modern Americans can swiftly and unapologetically embrace various forms of power. They say this about Americans, but really it's Western culture, period. Now, what I think is kind of interesting about the second quote is, is that the churches now emulate the values and the methodology of culture. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, does the gospel and culture, do, do, they, do they really fit together as, as neatly as we think they do? I would say to you, I would present to you that no freaking way. But yet churches seem to think that if we use the methods of culture, that we will attract people to our churches. That may be true, but we're not making disciples of Jesus. Instead, we're making people who are well, that's a whole different conversation, but you get the idea, right? Now, as, I, as, as you know, I'd like to look to the Bible through a Jewish lens. And part of my, over the last decade, I would say by this point in time, I have tried as much as possible to think about this concept through a Jewish lens. So one of the things I did when I looked at this idea, idea of narcissism, I actually started reading some rabbinic sources. So I have some rabbis, I, I actually have bookmark and I kind of go back. And so one, one rabbi I went to, and he was talking about narcissism, and he was talking about how it's prevalent in the culture. But then he kind of pointed out something to me that I didn't think about. He says, its origins, narcissism's origins, was actually in the garden. And I'd never thought about that. And he points to this particular passage of scripture in Genesis chapter 3. And he says this about it that I had never thought about. He says this, when the serpent says to Adam and Eve that you will be like God, 
what he's basically saying is that you will be independent of God and be self-sufficient, which he sees as the core seeds of narcissism. I thought that was kind of interesting, actually. That in the fall was this, was this seed planted within our spirits that really kind of leads us to this reality that we are the most important thing in the world. Right? That, we, that the world revolves around us. I used to uh, make a joke. My wife hates this joke. Um, but I'm going to tell you this joke anyways. It's not a very good joke, but I, I, say, I said, how many Bonos of the lead singer of, 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 of the band U2 does it take to screen a light bulb? She's like, she rolls her eyes. I said, one, him to hold the light bulb and the world to revolve around him. And uh, I could say that to all of us. I could insert my Raja into that. Oh, by the way, my name's Raja, not Roger. In case some of you don't know who I am, I get that a lot. Okay, so we start off every time uh, asking a simple question. And about every chapter we've kind of gone through. And we're going to be looking through the second part of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles or your electronic devices, you can get it out. Um, we're going to take a look. But here's a question I want to ask before we jump into this. Because Paul is going to ask us this question. Now, what's interesting is if you look through the book of 1 Corinthians, there's actually ways of looking at popular verses. Chapter 12, by the way, is a very popular chapter in 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 being also another popular one we've already kind of gone through. But what's interesting about chapter 12 and the second part we're going to look at, it's going to be talking about the body of Christ. And you know the passage of scripture. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna say to you that perhaps many of you have not read to the end of the chapter. Because what Paul is going to talk about, we know at the very beginning. I'm not going to spend too much time on it. But what I s will spend more time on is the end result of it. So remember uh, a couple weeks back, we looked at this idea of freedom. We talked about Christian freedom and what Paul says about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And I said that we know about that passage of scripture, but what we didn't know is what Paul's summary at the end of it he says. Remember what Paul says? He goes, if by eating meat I offend my brothers and sisters in Jesus, I will never eat meat again for my entire life. And just to be clear, that is as terrifying to me as anything I could imagine, right? Remember, there's only two things that really scare me, spiders and vegetarianism, right? That, that's, that's it. That's the only two things that freak me out, okay? So when Paul says that, what he's saying is, my desire is not as important as my brothers and sisters in Jesus. I will set aside my rights so that they may feel comfortable and, and, and they can feel kinship with me. Right? In this particular concept of what Paul's going to talk about with the body of Christ, he's going to come to another conclusion that I think that we might have missed. So let's take a look here. Let's jump in for chapter 12, and we're going to jump off. We're going to start off at verse 12 to 13. Look what Paul says. And again, this is going to be very popular. You know these scriptures, right? But again, you may not know the rest of the story. All right. The human body has many parts. But the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us uh, are Jews, some of us are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we all have been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. So what Paul is doing, this is a transition point from the first part of chapter 12, where he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Now he's, he's taking that application, he's applying it now to the body of Christ. The first question I asked was, because this is how my mind works, what did the ancient world think about the body? Because when we talk about the body today, we talk about it in, in, in a way that's systems and cellular and biological. But how did the ancient world look at the body? But not just the ancient world, because again, remember, the Bible was written first to Jewish people. So I thought, what did, how did ancient Jewish people look at the Bible? 
And so I looked up, uh, I looked a little, uh, I did some research, and I came up across a quote by a guy named uh, Rabbi Dr. Bradley uh, Shavit Artson. And this is what he says about Judaism and their understanding of the body. He says this, in many cases, what American spirituality avoids is the bodily reality of the human existence. Pause. Western Christianity has been infected by a guy by the name of Plato, right? Platonic thought, right? Plato had w one idea that was at the very core of his philosophy. Plato believed that there was a separation between the spiritual and the natural. Plato believed that the natural was evil and corruptible, while the spiritual was more divine and more, uh, uh, more uh, transcendent. So we have this idea of called platonic thought. Now what that did was, is it separated the natural world from the spiritual world. Now why, what the rabbi is saying is kind of important here. What Western Christianity has done is it separated the, the reality of our bodies from our spirits. So many people believe, wrongly, that when we go to heaven, we're just some kind of floating translucent blob that just, just goes through eternity like that, right? Some people believe we're playing harps. Some people believe we're wearing a white toga or robe or, or whatever. But that's not what the Bible says, actually. The Bible believes that whatever we, it looks like to go through eternity, we do this in a bodily form. And our Jewish brothers and sisters knew this, but we as Western Christians have forgotten this. Let's go on. Too much of American spirituality assumes that spirit, a concept originating in Greek thought and Pauline Christianity, I would say he's incorrect by that, but that's a different conversation, is the opposite of body, spirit, we are told, is good, pure and eternal. Body is bad, corrupt and ephemeral. Given that understanding of spirit, it's no wonder that the wide range of American spiritual movements tend to help free the person from the trap of their own bodies and drives. Judaism is a corporeal religion. We know that a spirituality that doesn't redeem the body with it, uh, with it is merely an escape and one doomed to failure in the end. Now, what I think is really important, what he really points out is, to the Jewish mind, there was no separation of spirit and, and, and mind and body. It was all together. Right? It was all together. So when Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, what's he saying to them? He doesn't know about cellular structure. He doesn't know about veins and all that. He sees the body as, as, as one whole together. But he does see it as hands, feet. He sees it as head, like, like, like all that. He sees it in that way, but it's a very primitive understanding, but that's what he sees. So the reason why this is important, when Paul talks about the body of Christ, he's not trying to make it down to a level of like, well, here's the different parts of it, and this is how it works. He's like, no, no, it's, it's all together, and this is how we look at it. Let's go on, verse 18 and 19. But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Makes sense, right? We need every part of our bodies that, to, to, to function in order for it to be healthy. Now, John Bloom says something kind of interesting about this on his commentary on this, and I want to point this out. The body is unity in diversity incarnate. The one, uh, the one you is compromised of an almost incomprehensible number of unique parts that all function together. And every member of your body, strong or weak, prominent or obscure, is necessary. The description of the body, the, uh, of the church as a body, is more than simply an analogy. It is a revealing of a mystery. The church isn't a mere organization. It, uh, organization. it is really an organism. Christ's body is alive, and like a human body, it is the incarnation of unity in diversity. I love that idea of unity in diversity because Paul brings that up a couple of times, and I'm going to show you in a second why that's even more astounding in the first century. 
But what he really points out here is whatever the church has become, whatever it looks like, the ancient origins of it was organic. And just so you know, bodies are, they're kind of messy, right? They're kind of messy in the sense that, you know, like, they can always surprise us where they hurt, the aches and pains, or when things don't stop working, right? And, you know, fun fact for all you young people, the older you get, the more things just don't seem to work as they used to, right? And again, that's just, you know, I know spoiler alerts here. I don't think we know all to be true, right? So last year, last year, yeah, last year when I was told I'm a diabetic, I was kind of angry with my body. Because I was like, how dare you let me down? Because I love me some sugar and I love me some bread, right? And, and rice and potatoes and all the other good stuff that's out there, right? But as a diabetic, I can't eat that kind of food on a regular basis. I can cheat every so often. So if you have me, see me having a French fry, don't slap it out of my hand. It's okay. I, 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 can, I can cheat every so often. But really what, it was, you know, what my doctor was telling me was that you know, your body is, is, is kind of breaking down. And I'm like, fantastic. Right? But the thing with the body is that that's what happens. There is a messiness to our bodies. Right? And so what Paul is trying to say here, what's really kind of interesting, is that whatever the body is meant to be, it's not always neatly tied together. So could you imagine not just your body, but many bodies trying to work together? You ever, you ever been in a church or gone to a church where somebody in that church really bugs you? kind of annoys you? That if they sit on one side, you sit the other? Not, none of you would be like that, of course, because you're all absolutely spiritual and wonderful people. I have had people like that in my life. You know, when I was at uh, the church I was growing up, there used to be this greeter at our church. And I don't know if this greeter would eat an entire clove of garlic in the morning or just rub it all over his body. Because how do I say this in a way that would honor Jesus? Um, he was the hand-over-hand greeter. Back in the day, this is what we used to do. And he would, so he would get your hand, and he had big, meaty paws, right? And he would grasp a hold of you, and he'd pull you right in, and he would just have a conversation. And man, I just want to have some binaca or some mentos. I just, just want to spray something at him. And, and he would, and, and he, like literally because we're Pentecostal. He would just speak over your life. But man, all I, my, my hair was like back and all this, right? It's like, it's just garlic and just halitosis, right? It was bad. So I remember walking. We'd walk into my family, right? There's my five sisters, myself, and, and, and my mom and dad, right? It's like basically like a, like, a, like a circus van of clowns coming out, right, of our station wagon. But I'd always look to see what door he's at, because there was three doors. And I would just kind of, <laughs> my family would go, well, I'd just veer right off, because... I just didn't want to have, you know, that, you know, that, that close encounter of the third kind with this individual on, on a Sunday morning. Now, just to be clear, he was delightful. He was a wonderful human being. And actually, he was. He just had that one issue that really kind of, you know. There's another lady in my church. And I don't know why she didn't like me. But I, I'm not, I, I wasn't, hmm, I know this might, you might find it hard to believe, but I wasn't likable as a young person. I had a lot of energy and I used to run around a lot. And in church, you're not supposed to run around. And it felt like she was the lobby, uh, how do you say it, uh, attendant or RA or whatever. Because if I was running through the lobby, she would call me out and say, you don't run in the God's house. Like she was always narking on me. And then not only would she catch me in that, she would tell my mother as well too, your son was running in church. 
I'm like, God doesn't like people running in church. And and in her defense, I was probably banging into people and all that as well too, because I wasn't that very, I wasn't that coordinated, not like I am today. <laughs> Point simply was that she really bothered me, right? Now the only reason I tell you these stories is just be simply because when we put a group of people together, well, there's just people you're not going to like. What I love about this quote from John Bloom is, is whatever the body of Christ is. The people you don't like, the people that annoy you, the people who sing off-key, the people who, and again, whatever the, whatever the classification is, they're actually there for a reason. That they're actually there for an interesting reason, and I'm, I'm going to tell you what that reason is in a second. Now, the other thing I want to point out here is that not only is the body of Christ full of people we don't get along with, may not even agree with, but there's another component to it as well, too. Take a look at verse 22 to 23. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe in the gr with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen. See, we, always we know about the first part of, this ch uh, of, of chapter 12, right? When it says, you know, the body of Christ is, 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 is one, it's different. And we go, yeah. But that's not what Paul's actually talking about. What Paul's actually talking about is whatever the body of Christ is supposed to be, there's parts of the body of Christ that are weak, that need help. But look what Paul says here. Those parts of the body are actually, what he, what, again, look at the language he uses, not what I'm telling you, are actually the most necessary. Did you ever think to yourself for a moment that the people in church or the, or, or the people that annoy you or, or not just in you know, this church and this in general, but in, in general, Christians in general, because right now we know this, we've talked about this a couple weeks back, they're called uh, the splintering of evangelicalism, right, into, into political, medical, whatever it might be. Did you ever think to yourself for a moment that the people that annoy you, that have different opinions to you, according to how Paul sees it, these are actually people that are most necessary? Now, I want to show you something here. Uh, uh, Margaret, uh, I can't pronounce her last name. You'll see why in a second. But uh, she actually has a commentary on this in, in, first, uh, in, in first Corinthians, not particularly this chapter. But she points something out here, and this is why it gets to the point of being scandalous in the first century. Look what she says. The first century Roman world was highly stratified, with slaves and many women having less freedom and less status than free men. About one-third of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves, but some of the most pitiful were female slaves. Thanks to a continuing legacy of Greek philosophers such as Aristotle, many people regarded women as weaker and as inferior to men in practically every aspect. Physically, intellectually, morally, etc. Aristotle and others also taught that slaves were inferior beings, so female slaves were twice devalued. So if we think of the early church as being 50% male, 50% female, that's just, you know, a general way of looking at it. Of those 50% females, a third of them would have been female slaves. Now, we, we answered this question a couple of weeks back, and if you missed it, uh, I'll just fill you in. We asked the question, does Paul the Apostle hate women? The good news is no. But the more interesting news was, is the Roman culture at the time treated women as inferior. I don't want to be too grotesque when I talk about this, but we know the impulses of men. And 
if you were a female slave in a male house, in a Roman household, well, I don't even want to fill in the blanks there. Could you imagine that woman going to church? Could you imagine that person with a history of abuse, sexually, physically, in a household, then going to church? What is Paul saying? This individual who's the weakest, who's the most abused, they're the most necessary. And do you know why he says the most necessary? Because they're the greatest opportunity the church has to prove what they actually say. That's love one another. So what does the church do in the, in the first century? And we know this because we know, we know the data from, uh, from the historians is that one of the populations that caught on to the gospel more so than anybody else was women. We see this with Christ and his followers, but we see this in the, early, in the first century church. Why? Because Christianity did what culture and the Roman religions couldn't do, and that was confer upon women dignity and respect that was unheard of in the first century. So when Paul says, those who seem the least important, those who seem the least valuable, they're actually the most necessary. Why? Because they're the opportunity the church has to show and to prove that every human being on the planet is made in the image of God. You know, what's interesting about how, how God works in our lives is that he always gives us opportunities to kind of grow up, to kind of be mature. I miss those opportunities sometimes. Often. We miss those opportunities. But what's interesting was Paul saying here is your inability to see another person in the image of God is directly, directly proportionate to your understanding of what God has done inside of you. And so why I find this so fascinating, why I think this is so even so uh, more important, is because when we talk about the body of Christ in, in the second half of, of chapter 12, we go, yeah, yeah, we know that. But see, what we don't realize is the strength of the body is not at how big it is or how, you know, how whatever attribute you want to apply to it. What it comes down to, what Paul really says to us, is that it's based upon those who are actually taking care of others. One of the things we do at UCC here, one of the things we love about UCC, one of the things we're trying to figure out with UCC is we love our university student population. And the reason we love our university student population is because we realize that these are people who are from different places who are going to school here. And we, at Uptown Community Church, we want to be a place where our university students can feel that they are a part of a community that doesn't just see them as a demographic we're trying to go for, but instead that they are, they're important to us as a community. Now, of course, the, the, the sad part is after four years or, or whatever it might be, we might lose them or if they're on co-op, we see them every half year type of thing. But really, UCC has always been a place where students have always been welcome. And not just welcome in the sense like, hey, welcome. But if you want to be part of what we do as a church, you are welcome to. And those of you who have been part of UCC and as a university, you know this to be true. This is not just abstract thought. Like if you want to be part of kids, you want to be part of worship, you want to be part of tech, you are welcome to. So it's not just a service like, hey, thanks for coming out. We appreciate you for lowering our age from like 80 to like, you know, 24 and all that. But instead it's like, no, no, you are actually important to who we are and what we are as a community. And not saying you're weaker, but being a student is a very, it's a very, um, how do I say this? It's a, it's, it's a, uh, it's an interesting time of life. 
right? It's an interesting time of life. You're trying to navigate through school, academics, finances. You learn to eat ramen for I don't know how many weeks in a row or KD or whatever it is, right? It's just, that's just the, the reality. Been there, done that, right? But the point simply is, is that churches look at those who perhaps might be not where everybody else are, but we exist for that population. Let's go on. Uh, verse 25 to 26. This makes for, and I love this word he uses here, harmony among the members, so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are, are glad. Can you think for a second about the overall health of any church you've been a part of, whether it's Uptown Community Church or some other church? And can you ask yourself if you really knew about those who were suffering in the church congregation? And if you knew that, were you moved to, to somehow help or, 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 or just be able to kind of be with those people to help them in that situation? Like, like think about that for a moment. Again, please don't take my words, but look what Paul is saying here. This makes for harmony amongst members so that all the members care for each other. One of the, one of the responsibilities we have in the church today is to care for each other. I thought it was just to sit down and listen to a long sermon. I thought that's, that, that's what we're supposed to be doing here, right? No, no. The goal is actually that we actually care for each other. How do you care for each other? Well, I'll tell you how you don't care for each other is when you don't actually know each other, right? If you, there's something I, I call spiritual tourism. And spiritual tourism are just people who kind of go from church to church to church to church. And it could be like after a couple of years, a couple of months, a couple of weeks. I don't know what it is, right? But it's just like, you know, the church hoppers, right? Now, I understand the point of looking for a, a, a church community that fits you. I get that. But spiritual tourism is more of a kind of a lifelong kind of aspiration. But what I always feel sorry for people who are spiritual tourists is the thing that they complain about the most of the church is the thing that they kind of bring upon themselves is that nobody knows them. If you're hopping from church to church to church, how do you build relationships? How do people know you? But not only that, see, consistency of relationship opens, up, opens ourselves up to vulnerability. And vulnerability looks something like this in a Western context. Yeah, I didn't have a good week. Yeah, you know, I'm really wrestling with this. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know how to deal with this particular sin in my life that just keeps coming back, the habitual one. See, with vulnerability, you get intimacy. Without vulnerability, you don't get intimacy. We don't get intimacy in the biblical understanding of it within a community of Christ followers. You're just spiritual tourists because nobody knows what you need because, first of all, just not talking about it. So what is Paul saying here? And again, I love the word harmony. I'm not a music major, and you're all should be grateful that I only worship because I either sing too loud or I'm off key or whatever it might be. But what I love, even, even though it's on the back there, I stop singing just to hear your voices. Remember, at UCC, we don't look at worship as entertainment, and I love what Marissa said this morning. It's not spiritual karaoke. But just hearing your voices come together, that's harmony. Harmony can only be made with multiple voices coming together for the same idea. But Paul says that's the idea behind the church. When the church works in harmony, it's diversity and unity together. And again, I, I got to say, I love that. But here's the thing. 
culture doesn't get this, right? Culture doesn't get this idea of, of, of harmony. Um, Brian Peterson says this way, we often confuse unity with uniformity because it is much easier to gather with people who are like ourselves than it is to reach across the divisions which mark the culture. Thus, few of our churches reflect the ethnic, social, and economic diversity of the neighborhoods around them. Our congregations are very homogeneous, and we are sadly comfortable with that. This is true, right? Everything we just talked about with regards, in regards to weaker, in regards to diversity, all these beautiful concepts, well, our churches all look the same. The same, you know, group of people all together, or if they're different groups of people, well, the same groups of people all kind of congregate together. And, and that's, that is weakness. Because I believe that when different generations, different backgrounds, different, again, whatever label you apply to yourself, when you talk to each other, wow, you just have a, you had just a unity within diversity. Uh, Dr. King Riddlebauer on his uh, commentary says this, because of human sin, the only way unity can be attained is through force, agree or else, through coercion or deception, like that of a false religion or political ideology, or through kumbaya unity, a superficial herd mentality. He's talking about culture. Right, right now, culture is looking for us to all kind of agree on certain topics. Well, how do we do that? We badger people. We make fun of people. We ostracize people. We isolate people. We cancel people. We ridicule people who are different than us. And we go, yeah, that's culture. It's actually church, too. It's actually Christians as well. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Christianity over the last two years has, has missed an opportunity. And the opportunity was to come together during a very difficult time to show the world we were different. But instead, we showed the world we're just like them. And that's the reason why many people within the world have said, you know, your Christianity doesn't really seem any different than my atheism. And do you know what? I can't really argue. I, I can't. Because they're absolutely correct. How we've treated each other, how we've behaved towards each other has been just atrocious. And Jesus says the same thing as well, too, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46 to 47. He says this, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. See, there are a lot of, there's a lot of talk about how we as Christ followers are meant to live in the world. And I believe those are really vital and important conversations. But in the back of my mind, Jesus' words, these haunting words, and again, this comes from a passage of scripture we call the Beatitudes, uh, uh, sorry, the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like Jesus' thesis statement for the kingdom of heaven. And the reason why Matthew puts this section of chapters at the very beginning because everything that Jesus is going to do afterwards remember Matthew was written to the Jewish people everything that Jesus was going to accomplish was going to take the kingdom of heaven and put it in contrast with the kingdom of the world the kingdom of Judaism and the kingdom of the Roman Empire because the kingdom of heaven was different from all three of those and so when Jesus says this listen you who call yourself Christ followers disciples of Jesus do you only help those who help you do you only love those who love you? Do you only love those people who agree with you? Because if you do so, you're nothing more than a pagan. You know, I, um, I, I, I went through this, well, actually, I'm still in this phase. I love documentaries. But 
for some reason, I like documentaries on really bad people. Just because I like seeing their, their, their worlds and just seeing, understanding how they are, right? Like, like, like serial killers or whatever. I, again, I know you're your pastor. You have to take, take, do the, what you will. But I remember a while back, I, I watched this documentary on um, the Colombian drug lord. What's his name? Um, uh, uh, Pablo, Pablo Escobar. Yes, right? Uh, by the way, Narcos. Don't watch it. Great show, though. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it's all about, it's all kind of, uh, you know, based upon that whole, like, you know, uh, Pablo Escobar. But what was interesting, and one interview they had with a person, is Pablo Escobar was one of the most bloodthirsty drug lords that history has ever seen. But a couple of people talked about him in such a way that was so interesting to me. They said, they talked about how uh, Pablo Escobar would go into impoverished communities and create schools and hospitals. That he was very loving towards his family. And that people who were close to him. And what I found kind of interesting about that is that Pablo Escobar is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Is that Pablo Escobar treated those who he loved very well. And he just basically killed those he didn't. But what Jesus is saying is whether it's a corrupt tax collector or a pagan, if we as Christ followers use this as our metric, then we are failing. We just, we're just absolutely failing. Because if the body of Christ exists only to pat ourselves on the back that we're getting together as a body of Christ, we have missed the message altogether. So when it comes to this idea of church, there's two ideas that kind of come to mind. And I just want to say them to you because this is two things I've thought about, right? It's this idea of parasitic versus symbiotic. And let me give you two definitions, not from the Bible and not, not for any Christians, one from the CDC and one from National Geographic. So hopefully they're as, as, um, as kind of non-political as possible. Well, CDC maybe, I don't know. Um, but here's what a parasite is. A parasite is an organism that lives on or in a host organism and gets its food from or at the expense of its host. Right? That's what a parasite is. A symbiote or symbiotic is this. Symbiosis is a term describing any relationship or interaction between two dissimilar organisms. The specific kind of symbiosis depends on whether either or both organisms benefit from the relationship. Why is this a science class this morning? Because in the body of Christ, there's parasites. And in the body of Christ, there are people who are symbiotic. A parasite takes what they need and gives nothing back. A symbiote, it's a benefit of both. When Paul talks about the body of Christ, when he puts this idea of whatever the body of Christ is, unity and diversity, we love all that kind of stuff. Because, no, no, it comes down to a very specific point. That point is the body of Christ exists so that those who are in stronger in some areas helps the weaker. And if you're a parasite in the body of Christ, you don't care about the weaker. You just care about getting what you need. And this is what I have found historically has been the issue within the church today. Too many people come to church to get something from it. And again, I hope that when you come to UCC that you get something from it. But I also hope that you give something back. And only you can really answer that. So the question is, what does the church mean to you? Here's my definition. And it's kind of convoluted, which for me kind of makes a lot of sense, right? But this is what I think when I think of the church. A community of broken and more broken people being gradually transformed into relational, organic, messy, entity that cares or invests in the other in the presence of their transcendent creator. Again, a really messy, you know, definition. But here's what I mean by it. When I think of the body of Christ, 
I think of a group of people who are just kind of messed up. But I also think of the people who are really messed up. See, there isn't any, yeah, I've got it all together, therefore I'm going to help out. By the way, just so you know, if I've got it all together was the, was the entrance into any part of leadership within the church, nobody could do it. Like, like nobody, and I include, oh, sweet and merciful, I include myself on that. Right? There's just, just nobody is, is qualified to be in any kind of leadership or volunteer or, or whatever it might be. So it's the broken and the more broken coming together to invest and to care for each other. But the part that I had to make sure I put in there was in the presence of their transcendent creator. Transcendence is this idea of being outside of us. Because you know what? Internally, we don't care about others. We don't care about those who disagree with us. And matter of fact, we hate those who, who hate us. But what does Jesus say? If you love those who love you, you're Pablo Escobar. That's the, uh, that's the message translation, just so you know, right? <laughs> or the uh, RSV translation, the Roger Stone translation, right? You're just Pablo Escobar. And I know that seems kind of weird. Jesus is saying something very important. He says, listen, if your basis for care for one another doesn't go past what the world does, has the Holy Spirit really come to live inside of you? Has the cross really stood before you as a transformative moment? And again, only you can answer that. At UCC, we, 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 use, we talk about how we engage with the church with three words. And for those of you in part of UCC, you know. We talk about our time, we talk about our talents, we talk about our treasure. I would say to you that this is how we simplify our entirety of our lives, right? Time is just a simple one, right? Time simply just sim means that we're here this morning. We've decided to come together, or we're going to talk about small groups in a second. You know, it's, that's time, right? But it's not just about time of gathering here. It's also time investing in other people. Sometimes we have to go for coffee. Sometimes we need to help one another. That's time. Our talents, I put a guitar up there, but really it's just anything. And just so you know, the most basic of talent at UCC, I welcome to UCC. If you can string that sentence together, you have a talent that could be used at UCC. It's kind of a low bar. I know what you mean. I know, I know what you're saying here, right? But really, the fact is that at UCC, we don't put performance as a high value, which means that sometimes people who are part of our worship teams are just learning your instrument. But you know what? Because we're not here to perform for you, that doesn't really bother us. Why? Because the Holy Spirit isn't a timid bunny that runs away if, if the, if the, if the uh, slide projector person puts a wrong verse up there or, or something happens. We, we don't care. Right? Again, we've got to grow up a little bit in regards to how we view worship. So our talents are a part of that. But there is a third part, and this is the part that many Christians are really scared to talk about, and that's a treasure. Just so you know, <laughs> the owner of this theater doesn't give to us for free. He's a nice guy, and John Todd has been fantastic with us. We've been in a relationship with him for eight years since the beginning, and our relationship is fantastic, and I really appreciate and respect John Todd. But guess what? We pay to be here. And I don't volunteer my time either. <laughs> I know I probably should. Uh, and trust me, you don't pay me the hours I put in. However, treasure is a part of what we do to make sure that everything we do as a church functions. And not just that, though. For those of you at Ray of Hope uh, a couple weeks ago, you know what we do with the time, the, our, our resources. We try to make sure that we have a very low resource footprint. We talk about this at UCC all the time, right? People talk about a carbon footprint. We talk about a resource footprint. And our resource footprint is meant to be very, very small. Why? Because we don't believe the resources that God has given us as a church are meant for us to kind of razzle-dazzle. 
right? Like, that's not why we exist. And, and on a weekly basis, I get requests from the community for help. So we have relations with uh, different organizations, House of Friendship, Ray of Hope, and they'll send me a request from a family. Last week, I dropped off a gift card to a refugee family in the area here, people who'd never attended UCC, who don't know anyone at UCC, but just needed help. I get to do that. You know why? Because people use their treasure to make sure that UCC is able to do that. That's what we talk about a low-resource footprint. Right? That's why everybody on staff at UCC has another job. That's how we roll here. And again, please understand, there's no, uh, if another church has a different way of doing it, that's totally fine. But when I think about the body of Christ, when I think about how we look at, we are not meant to just to use the resources for our own benefit. Let me close. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. I like that, right? I like that. Why? Because it doesn't matter if you just stumble in here or have been a part of it for many years. If Christ is in you, you are the body of Christ. And if you are the body of Christ, you are a part of what we do. And we want to invite you into a more symbiotic relationship as opposed to parasitic. And that could take time. And that could take trust. And kicking the tires of UCC, that's so cool. But that's the thing that's kind of interesting. I, I, I love this quote here. Though the church has many critics, it has no rivals. And I want to say to you that whatever the church is and however the church is messed up, and it has, what the church does on a global scale, there isn't a, a government, there isn't an organization that can touch our effectiveness. And I will, I will back that up with numbers like you wouldn't believe. There is no organization in the world that has done more to fight global poverty, hunger, sickness, education than the church. There isn't one. And it's leaps and bounds ahead of even the closest. Forget the UN, forget the World Health Organization, forget anything like that. And not in the sense of like, I'm down for that. I'm just saying, in regards to what they do, the church does it a thousand times better. You know why? Because it's just a group of individuals go, you know what? There's a need over there. Let's go. You know what? There's a need over there. Let's go. We don't wait for somebody to tell us we do have to help. At, at UCC, we help out in the community. We do whatever we can. But you know what I love about UCC people? They don't look, hey, pastor, can we go do this? Or, hey, pastor, can we do that? Like, no, no. They just go do it. I'm always astounded to hear people are doing it in the community because I don't even know. But that's not the point. The point is that each person in their worlds, what, whatever need God's presented to them, there they are. They're at that. Right? The church has many critics, but it has no rival. I don't know who said it. I tried to find out. It always came back anonymous, so anonymous it is. Uh, maybe it's Jesus. I don't know. Right? But, uh, but I think it's true, though. Whatever the body of Christ is, and please hear me very clearly, the church has gotten so many things wrong. And I confess and I admit that to you. Oftentimes, all I do in the community and the, the culture is just say, I'm so sorry. That's all I do. That's all I say. You're a pastor? Yeah. Well, you're like, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Well, I, yeah, I'm sorry. But I don't leave it at, I'm sorry. I'm like, let's talk about what we can do better. How do we get into the community more? How do we help out more? That's the vitality that the church has. So this morning, we're going to celebrate communion. And hopefully, if you received a all-in-one communion cup, if you did not, Gabe is going to come forward. And he's going to, if you, have, if you don't have a communion cup, just put your hand up and Gabe will make sure you get one.
because we want to make sure everyone has a chance for communion this morning. And as Gabe comes around, if you need a communion cup, please do so. But for the rest of you, let's bow our heads. We, we taught about communion a couple weeks back because of, uh, because of what Paul was talking about. Remember we talked about communion, that communion wasn't just about remembering Christ's death, but communion was this opportunity for us as a body of Christ to come together and, and, and get rid of division and then get rid of um, the separation between us. So the worship team is going to come and they're going to lead through a song. You're going to hold on to communion. At the end of the song, we're going to take communion together. The reason I'm giving you this opportunity just before we, we partake of it is to make sure we have the opportunity to reflect and to just to evaluate our own spirits. If there's something we need to confess, if there's a prayer of forgiveness we need to utter, if there's just a reflection that we need to have, then let's just have it during the time of worship. And at the end of that, I'm going to come up and we're going to take communion together.
spread. And I know it takes a little bit of there. There's a top layer you need to, and there's a piece of white cardboard waiting for you on the other side. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. He said, this is my body. Remember, when Jesus told his disciples this, they didn't know what was coming, but he did. This was the Passover meal that Jewish people would celebrate once a year. But Jesus takes this meal and he transforms it into um, a a new covenant. And so what he was trying to say here is, this is the reason I came. My body, which is going to be broken, is going to make a new body of believers that are united. And so the brokenness of his body invites us into a unity that only Christ can accomplish. So as we eat this morning, let's remember we live in the unity of Christ's body. In the same manner, he took the cup. He says, this is a new covenant. The word covenant means sacred oath to the Jewish people. And the covenant simply means this. Every time we fall, every time we fail, every time that we mess up as Christ followers, that Jesus says, my blood, that which keeps me alive, will be there to make sure that you receive forgiveness, that you receive redemption, and that you be made whole once again, before our creator. And this blood isn't just simply for us, but it's also for us as the body of Christ to use it with grace and compassion towards one another. In our, in our diversity and our differences, we can find commonality through Christ's body and his blood. Let's drink. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for the diversity that is in this room. I thank you for how you've brought us together. And Lord, for those of us who feel weaker this morning, I pray, God, that we would all remember something. The body of Christ exists so that stronger, weaker, broken, or more broken can come together in vulnerability and stand before their creator. That, Lord, our job is to care and to love for one another. That, Lord, that we don't aspire to the world's rules, which is love those who love us, love those who look like us, love those who agree with us. But instead, the cross tells us that each person is made in the image of God, is worthy of dignity and respect. And not just even that, worthy of our investment of our time. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd stir within us a love once again for the body of Christ, a love for one another, and a care for each other. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just have some announcements real quick here before we go. A few announcements, a couple of surprise announcements. Uh, Just to let you know, after Thanksgiving, which is October 9th, that following week, we're going to start small groups. So we call them city groups at at Uptown Community Church because we're pretentious. But they are groups that meet throughout the city. Now, just a quick note, the Monday night group is is our young adult group. That starts tomorrow. Okay. But Wednesday and Thursday, we will have small groups that meet throughout the city. And so if you are interested to be part of a small group, we would encourage you to do so. And it'll be a Wednesday night, uh, Thursday night group. The Monday groups, not that they're cooler, but they do have an age requirement. So just, uh, you know, just, to, just to be clear of that. So just so you know, our small groups will be starting the, the first week of act, uh, after October. Because Thanksgiving is a little bit earlier this year, nobody wants to do small group trying to prep for, uh, for Thanksgiving. Also, young adults, uh, university students, tomorrow night uh, at uh, the Hoother 
hotel, and the boardroom, which is just basically going upstairs, you can't go upstairs anymore, and that's where the boardroom is. Yes, we provide nachos for you, so the nachos will be returning again, uh, but you can get whatever food you want, but that's tomorrow night. And please, one of the challenges that Uptown Community Church is facing right now is in the two years of the pandemic, all our students graduated, and we weren't able to reach out to the first and second years. So right now, we are, even our university students are old, or our, our young adults are old. And so we're looking to reach back out to the university campus. So if you're on campus, please invite people to be part of it. We're just looking to kind of get back onto campus and let people know that Uptown Community Church exists. We don't want to be the best kept secret in KW. And so um, that's for tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Uh, journey starts off for the year again, and we're looking forward to the year. We have a great leadership team and uh, a great plan. So, um, and if you're here and you're like a university or a young adult and you don't know anything about that, you can talk to uh, Trevor or anybody else who's a, who has a journey name tag, Micah and, and, and so many other ones, Rick and Mary who are still in university because they just couldn't quite pass. And so uh, you can talk to them. We, we want to make sure that you have all the information. Also, surprise announcement. Um, for those of you who don't know, we have a sister church called Wellesley Community Church. And it's been a couple of years since we've been together because of obvious reasons. Well, every... Uh, the tr tradition was is that during our long weekends, which are usually like uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter, we would have combined services. Well, uh, Wellesley feels comfortable once again to be able to do so. So on uh, 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 Sunday, October 9th, right behind Will's man bun there, um, there is, we're going to be at Wellesley Community Church for our combined service once again. So Wellesley will be teaching, we'll be doing worship, there'll be a kids program, all that. Just bring your own coffee because just, uh, I, I'm not sure if coffee will be available. Just so you know, coffee and tea are back at UCC. So those of you who are stopping at Starbucks and, 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 uh, and uh, Tim Hortons or whatever else, save your money. Uh, please have coffee with us and we have good tea as well too. But uh, so on Sunday, uh, October 9th at 10.30, not 10 o'clock, 10.30, we will be at Wellesley Community Church for our first combined service after a while. If you do not have a ride, because there are no buses that go out that way, uh, we will give you rides. So don't worry, students. If you're here that weekend, uh, we will give you rides. No worries about that. But we'll be there for that. Also, our, our Christmas Eve service will be combined again, too, and Easter as well, too. So we're excited to have uh, a restoration of that relationship once again and come visit our brothers and sisters at Wellesley Community Church. So just so you know, we won't be here on that Sunday. We'll be at Wellesley Community Church. And for those of you who are new don't know that, it's, again, it's, it's a beautiful little uh, country church, and we are so excited to be back uh, at uh, Wellesley Community Church for that time. Also, for those of you who miss any services or having a trouble time, hard time falling asleep, uh, our sermons are available either by video or podcast, so just make sure if you want to catch up on that, that, that's there. And as always, if you are part of UCC, um, this is your church home. We want to say thank you so much to all of you who continue to contribute to us. So by e-transfer, text to give, whatever you want, we are happy for that uh, as well. Plus, in case you didn't see, on the way in, there's a QR code. You can just scan that for our update. Um, I'm doing a series on our values of, of who UCC is, so you can get that. But also our numbers and all that kind of stuff's in there, our announcements. We have a bowling night coming up, a family bowling night in November. I think it's November 4th. Friday, November 4th. I could be wrong on that date, but Friday, November 4th, we're going back to uh, Kingpin Bowling, and we're going to have a bowling night as well, too. That's always fun, right? So uh, we're, we are looking to kind of get back together. We were hoping to do a paintball this fall, but uh, all the paintballs in the area <laughs> shut down, apparently. So we have to look a little bit further afield, and so uh, we'll, we'll think about that maybe for the spring. So if you have any questions about Uptown Community Church, who we are, what we are, anything I talked about, Please come talk to me. I don't bite. I just nibble a lot. So just, uh, just to let you know, let's stand. Let's have our benediction uh, for today. 
Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for this body of Christ that is uh, regrowing, trying to reestablish community once again after uh, a long time of being apart. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would continue to use Uptown Community Church for your kingdom, for your glory, for the furtherance of, your, of, 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 a, of a community that cares for one another. Lord, from the youngest to the oldest, from those who are weak or weaker, whatever it might be, Holy Spirit, please move us, compel us to care for one another. Jesus, we are so grateful for what you have done in our lives through the cross. We are, ex we are so grateful for the gift of the Holy Spirit you've placed within us. And I just pray, Lord, that we would look differently, act differently, think differently than the culture. That we would have unity in diversity in the incarnational understanding of the body of Christ. And Lord, for those who are looking who are searching for uh, a community, Lord God, I pray that Uptown would be a place where they could invest, could grow, to be a part, kind of move from parasite to more of a symbiotic relationship with this body, Lord. Thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Now may the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. If you have any questions about anything I've said this morning, come talk to me. The rest of you, you are dismissed. There's still tea and coffee on the way out. And next week, there might be baked goods. Who knows? We'll see. Take care. <laughs>